Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, if you would open it to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. The psalmist, whoever it was, but it was somebody, <laughs> uh, wrote, writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse uh, 23 and following, Wake up, Lord, why are you sleeping? Get up, don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground, rise up, help us, redeem us because of your faithful love. Would you pray with me again briefly? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from a, uh, a sports standpoint, this is one of my favorite times of the year. It's probably my, my totally favorite time of the year, but it's, it's college baseball playoff time. You, you, you get it, because I went to Oregon State, and that's the only thing that they're any good at. Um, <laughs> Nevertheless, this is a good, it's, it, it is a good few weeks. And so uh, I, and, and I love baseball in general. And, 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 and this year in college baseball, there was one team, I won't tell you exactly who it was. It wasn't Oregon State, uh, who has just dominated the whole year. But they, man, they are obnoxious. They, they are the most obnoxious team that I have ever seen. I'm 55 years old. I'm, I'm a pretty big sports fan. They are, without a doubt, the most obnoxious team that I've ever seen. And they lost one of their their first super regional game and, and uh, one of their best players got kicked out. And, and, and it was interesting following on Twitter because everybody was putting like hashtag universe strikes back hashtag karma, right? Just one word. And I had no idea that there were so many Buddhists and Hindus out there in the college baseball world. Yeah. But but you know what's actually going on with that, right? I, I mean, <laughs> karma. <laughs> we expect the world to make sense. So what you put in is what you get out. And if people do bad things, we expect bad things to happen to them. Someone cuts you off on the road, and then they get a flat tire, and we say, ha, ah, the universe was watching. The universe is watching. Or we might even say karma. We might say karma, because most people who say karma, they're not actually Buddhist or Hindu. What they're actually saying is what comes around ought to go around. That if you do bad things, bad things ought to happen to you. And if you do good things, good things ought to happen to you. The universe keeps score. Now, from a theological standpoint, that makes no sense whatsoever, because the universe is not personal and has no agency at all, let alone sovereign control. And as I said, karma is a Buddhist and Hindu doctrine that's grounded in a false view of nature, the nature of God and of reality. But of course, the overwhelming majority of people who say such things, they don't really believe that the universe is personally keeping score, nor do they have any Buddhist or Hindu convictions whatsoever. What they're really saying is that, I wish things made sense, and man, isn't it great when they do? Isn't it great when things make sense? That if there's any justice at all, what goes around ought to come around. And they hope that it will, at least when it benefits them. Now, from a Christian perspective, I think we would affirm such things, but we would do so because we believe that there is a perfect holy God who is completely sovereign, 
He has created the physical universe and the moral universe, the latter of which is governed by his holy and righteous character. And he has created the world so that it kind of does make sense, at least most of the time, that what goes around comes around, at least some of the time. There's a cause and effect aspect to this world. The book of Proverbs makes that clear, doesn't it? Cheaters never prosper, usually. And, and the wicked will be judged one day. But what happens what happens when things don't appear to function in that cause and effect matter? What do we do when cheaters do win? When the dishonest do prevail? And when the wicked prosper? What do we do when the honest are taken advantage of? When integrity is maligned and the righteous suffer? More to the point, what do you do when your suffering is so great it seems out of step with how things ought to be. You do the moral calculus in your mind, and it just doesn't make sense. Lord God, I know I'm a sinner, but do I deserve this? These are the questions that have perplexed people for a long, long time, including the biblical writers. The Bible's full of people asking questions like, why do the wicked prosper? And... More to the point, how long, oh Lord, how long until you redeem me? Well, these are the very questions that are asked in Psalm 44. These are the questions that are asked in Psalm 44. I'm going to put the main point of the sermon up on the, uh, the board here, or someone will, and here it is. Christians will suffer for a variety of God-ordained reasons. This is going to be a happy sermon, isn't it? I'm going to leave it, it's, it. I'm leaving it that stark. We're going to talk about why, though. We're going to talk about why and what a good response would be. So if, if you're here this morning listening, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, maybe. I would invite you during these next few minutes to consider your life in light of this moral universe. Do you think that you have received what you have coming to you? Probably you have some conviction on that. But what reason do you have to feel that something else ought to have happened to you or been given to you? What reason do you have? Christian, I would invite you to consider the words of this psalm in light of your own circumstances. Are you going through right now suffering that is inexplicable? And there is a dissonance between what is happening to you on the one hand and what you feel ought to happen to you in light of God's promises, in light of God's salvation on the other hand. And that dissonance has left you confused and maybe even discouraged. And if so, this psalm is for you. Okay, so, so what is Psalm 44? Let me give you just a little bit of context for it. This, this is a psalm of lament. It is a psalm of, uh, of petition to the Lord. It's a plea for deliverance. But to understand the frustration that the psalmist feels, we have to understand the covenantal context in which it was written. 
Israel, at the time of the writing of this psalm, and I don't even know within plus or minus, you know, 300 years exactly when this psalm was written, but I do know the covenantal context for it. It's the Mosaic Covenant. That's the covenant that governed the people of Israel, their relationship with the Lord. And the Mosaic Covenant, as as so many of you know, was a very specific covenant that prescribed certain rewards and curses for specific behaviors. It was very much a case of God saying to Israel, Israel, if you do this, if you obey me, I will bless you in these material ways. But if you disobey, then I will curse you in these specific ways. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, for example, to get a list of these blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. 14 verses of blessing for obedience, and they are holistic. It is like the, it's, it's like the prosperity gospel. There is, there is uh, fruitfulness that is promised. There is peace. There is joy. There is uh, uh, health. It, it's, it's all wonderful, the blessings of the Lord. But that's followed by 54 verses of curses for disobedience. And, and, and those curses are just as holistic. Every single aspect of a person's life is affected by these curses of disobedience. They, it's famine and death and disease and destruction. And so, in other words, for Israel, in their covenantal context, the moral universe, if you will, made sense. You got out what you put in. Blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. And the, the book of Proverbs, of course, functions under the Mosaic Covenant. Rewards, the, the rewards promised in the Mosaic Covenant are promised for wisdom and obedience, whereas many of the consequences for disobedience are, are right out of the Mosaic Covenantal curses as well. And that's the way that the universe is supposed to work. We read the book of Proverbs and we say, hey, cheaters don't prosper. The wicked will be judged. The righteous will be vindicated. That's how the universe works. Except when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't. Consider the book of Job. I think one of the main reasons that Job is in the biblical canon is to balance the book of Proverbs. Because have you ever noticed in the book of Job that all of Job's long-winded friends are, are dropping their wisdom on him? And Every single thing that they say could come right out of the book of Proverbs. Every single thing. And yet the reason that Job was suffering, it had nothing to do with his own faithlessness. There was more going on. There was a lot more going on. One of the lessons of Job is that life doesn't always make sense. And in our Psalm today, Psalm 44, life was not making sense to the people of God. They were going through trials, even though they had remained faithful. Psalm 44 records their divinely inspired response. So I'm going to, we're going to walk through this Psalm and I'm going to tell you what it meant back then. And then what it means for us today. And we'll do that kind of stanza by stanza here. Look at, at, at verses one through three. God, we have heard with our ears. Our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days, in days long ago. In order to plant them, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. 
For they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But by your right hand, your arm and the light of your face, because you were favorable toward them. Israel, the, the, the people of God, they've, they've heard all that the Lord did to bless them in the past. They inherited the land, not through their own might, but through the power of God. And they know these things because it's their story. It's their family history. They've heard them, but they don't know them necessarily because they're experiencing them in the moment. That feels like the past, God chose Israel. He displaced the nations in a miraculous display of power that left no doubt as to God's regard for Israel. And God brought Israel into the promised land to fulfill promises made to Abraham, but he also did it to judge the other nations for their sin. Hundreds of years before Israel entered the land, God told his servant Abraham, I'm giving you this land, just not yet. It's going to be a while before you go in. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. God's long-suffering patience had not run out yet, but it would. And when it did, God would displace those nations to judge them and to fulfill promises made to Abraham. This is what Israel knew, and this is what they were confessing in the first few verses of the psalm. Their salvation was of the Lord, and it was due entirely to the sovereign work of God. This is what they knew. God had acted this way in the past, and they knew the character. They knew the promises of God. God had shown favor to his people. Of course, that's what makes the rest of the psalm puzzling. Christian, the story of your salvation is a story of what God has done for you. Every single Christian has an amazing story to tell, even if, even if your testimony is not super dramatic. In the eyes of heaven, it is. Because you were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You were once dead in trespasses and sin, and God has made you alive in Christ. Your salvation is a miracle wrought by God and God alone. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were by nature an object of God's wrath, he atoned for your sin in Jesus Christ. Of course, that's the gospel. That's the gospel you were preached Sunday after Sunday here. And this is, the gospel is the true measure of God's justice that ought to guide us in all of our moral reasoning. Come what may, Christian, you know what God thinks of sin. Come what may, you know God's goodness to you. So tell the story of what has been done for you. Recite it to the next generation that they might know of their inheritance and blessing, but more importantly, recite it to yourself that it might anchor your soul. If you understand yourself to be a Christian, you know God is good. You know God is powerful to save. He has done all of the heavy lifting already. He can take care 
of the rest. Come what may, God has loved you and taken care of your most pressing problem at great cost to himself. He loves you. If you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that God loves you. So he can be trusted to carry you through to the end. Look at the second, the second stanza, verses 4 through 8. Israel says, you are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you, we drive back our foes. Through your name, we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow, and my sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our foes, and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. This is a great statement of faith and resolve. And in light of what God has done for Israel in the past, they would continue to believe in the Lord. They would trust in him to give them victories. They have always and would continue to rely upon God to give them victory. There's no sense here in this psalm of arrogance or some sort of misplaced dependence. They're not saying, God, you saved us in the past and now it's all up to us. There's nothing like that. They know that in the past it was entirely God. And so they know that even now it has to be entirely God. It's a statement of faith and trust. Israel knows from whom their help comes. They know that they are completely always 100% dependent upon the Lord. Even their victories are not merely because God happened to be stronger than whatever nation and its God was they were up against. No, they were given victory because God had ordained it. God had determined and then executed the plan. God was and is truly sovereign. But the, the question here for Israel, they're wrestling with was, was, was this just in the past? If these things are true, then why are bad things happening? But at this point in the psalm, they, they are intent. They are going to rightly praise and glorify the God of Israel. They are going to boast in the Lord. And they will praise the God of Israel. So for us, what, is, what does this mean? Well, the, pretty much the same thing. We, we have to trust that as God has been and is, he will forever be. God is the immutable one, the unchanging one. If we understand his character to be a certain way in the past, we can rest assured that it will always be that way. We also understand, right? You, you know that if you were saved through faith in Christ, that it was God all the way, you did nothing in it. So, so, so today now, do you trust in your own self-sufficiency? Are you quick to pray? Well, for the big stuff in your life, sure. But what about the small things? You know, when my, um, when my wife was sick a couple years ago, boy, that just, just drove me to my knees because what on earth could I possibly do? Nothing. I was totally helpless. It wasn't a very good feeling for me. But you know the reality? I've always been helpless. 
I've always been helpless. Uh, 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 parents, you know that, 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 that when the, the, the mother was pregnant, it's such a helpless feeling because, you know, what can you do? Especially like as a dad, I can't, I can't do anything. What can I do? All I can do is pray, right? But you're fooling yourself to think, oh, well, now the baby's born. Now I can take care of this child. No, yeah, actually, this the, like the, the the period of pregnancy is really good practice because you're kind of helpless during those nine months, and then you're helpless after that, right? You're totally dependent upon the Lord all the time. I mean, we can do some things, but we're still always totally dependent upon God for the big things and the small. So we have to resolve not, not merely to pray, but to follow Israel's example here in this psalm to praise. When things are going poorly, is it your impulse to complain or to despair? Or is your first impulse to trust that manifests itself in praise? Is it possible that praise is the ultimate demonstration of trust in trials? Remember the words of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look at the third stanza, verses nine and following. But you have rejected us and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe and those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. Your hand, you hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long. And shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. Boy, that but at the beginning of verse 9 is ominous, isn't it? This great statement of trust in God and all that he's done. But now things are not as they ought to be. The hand of blessing apparently has been removed and it's been replaced with a hand of cursing. And notice here that the psalmist is not questioning God's sovereignty at all. Everything he said about God being sovereign in the prior verses, that still obtains here. There's no wavering. There's no sense that things are spinning out of control. Everything that is happening is happening because the Lord is behind it. The psalmist is absolutely certain of that. Notice how you dominates verses 9 through 14. You have rejected us. You make us retreat. You hand us over. You sell your people. You make us an object. You make us a joke. It is all, every single wretched detail here, From the hand of the Lord. Whereas before they had conquered through the Lord, now they are conquered by the Lord. And it hurt. They confess their shame, their disgrace. They feel every single taunt as if their enemies were sticking a knife between their ribs and twisting it. 
What's going on? God's people were suffering, and it made no sense to them. And here's why it made no sense. Look at verses 17 through 22. All this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our, our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path, but you have crushed us in a haunt of jackals and have covered us with deepest darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out? Since he knows the secrets of our heart, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. See, this is why it didn't make any sense to the psalmist. People of God, they had not broken the covenant. They had not been faithless. The evil that had befallen them, it was apparently not a covenantal curse. They were not getting what they deserved. It was in spite of their faithfulness, not because of their unfaithfulness, that the judgment of God had fallen on them. And again and again, they plead their innocence here. And, and they know they can't fool God. I mean, they're talking to God. They know that their whole life is open before God. So it's not just that they're lying or giving lip service to it. It's, it's as if they're saying, God, you know our hearts. We can't lie to you. We can't lie to you about this. They know they can't hide from God, and yet they are confident in their assertion. They were adamant that they had not been faithless. Now, I know that our first impulse as Christians, because we know the depravity of man, and we know how faithless Israel was. We know that they went into exile precisely because they broke the covenant. And we think to ourselves, our first impulse is probably this. Well, that can't possibly be true. They are fooling themselves. They were covenant breakers. And they got what they deserved. But in this psalm, it doesn't say that, does it? If we think that Israel was just lying, then what does that say about the inspiration of this text? What does it say about the inerrancy of Psalm 44? What would be the point of the Holy Spirit inspiring such a false message? Further, Paul quotes this passage, this psalm in Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No Paul concludes, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, we'll come back to this passage a little later, but note now that Paul was crushed precisely because he was a faithful apostle. And that's why he quotes this psalm. I mean, Israel's not going to say that things are spun out of control. They've already confessed that God is absolutely sovereign over all these things. So their suffering has to come from God. And so what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, like, like I said at the beginning, Christian, you will suffer for a number of God-ordained means. Bad things do happen to the people of God. We might even say it this way, bad things happen especially to the people of God. 
But of course, if we think about it, Jesus warned us about this, didn't he? He warned us about this. He promised that his followers would suffer. Upper room discourse, he tells his disciples, you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I've conquered the world. He he gave this invitation to follow him. Notice it has nothing to do with your best life now. It's if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And then Paul in the book of Acts, he he just told people it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary. So Jesus and his apostles warned that suffering would come to those who follow him. And so apparently this is what you signed up for. This is what you signed up for when you placed your faith in Christ and decided to follow Jesus. But why does suffering come? Why? Sometimes it's an easy answer. Right? The world and the devil seek to hurt and destroy anything that has to do with Jesus. Sometimes it's an easy answer. And then we could also say, uh, well, exactly what kind of suffering is going on here? What, what, what kind of suffering is going on? Is, it, is the suffering that Jesus warned about just persecution by people who hate Jesus? And, and I would answer that question, no. No. Here's, here's Paul's testimony of himself. And, and notice the litany of things that he suffered as an apostle. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentile, dangers in the city, danger Will Robinson, is that his name? Yeah, geez. Dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things, among other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I'll boast about my weaknesses, he says. So here Paul lists everything from religious persecution to hunger to just the daily stresses of caring for people. All of these things fall within the purview of suffering in this world, suffering for Christ. So what about you? Where are you at right now? I, I mean, I know that, that, that some of you right now are experiencing some persecution for your faith and per, perhaps not the stonings or the lashes like Paul received, but the injustices, however small, still hurt. Some of you are facing frustrating chronic illness. Some of you are facing acute illness. Some of you are facing economic hardship. Some of you are dealing with family issues that are devastating and discouraging. Some of you are in relationships that have been deeply disappointing, if not abusive. Some of you wish you could be in a relationship, but for whatever reason, God has not answered your prayer in the manner that you desire. And if Psalm 44 is correct, then all of these things hurt. But all of them are controlled by a sovereign God. And because you're a Christian, there is more than simple cause and effect at work here. And because you're a Christian, your response to all of these things matters. Of course, that still doesn't answer the question of why. 
So what I want to do is I want to give you seven reasons that Christians suffer. Seven reasons. We're finally getting to the main point of this sermon. <laughs> I'm, this is not an exhaustive list. And I'm not trying to put a, put a happy face on it. I'm not trying to explain things away. I think that evil is to be protested and fought against even when God is using that evil for his good purposes. I remember when uh, Camille was, was diagnosed a few years ago, and I, I sent a text off to my colleague, Gary Bashirs, and his response back was one line, I protest. Christian, suffering hurts. Suffering hurts. And it is to be protested, and it is to be fought against, but it is to be protested faithfully, and it is to be fought against faithfully. So here are seven reasons why suffering may come to Christians, or will come to Christians. One, to hurt Jesus. So this is the easy one. This is the religious persecution. The world and the devil, they hate Jesus, therefore they hate you, and they will unleash anything they can to bring him hurt. And the enemy knows that what hurts you hurts Jesus. And so they will, the world and the devil will lash out against you. Remember the apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, Jesus confronts him and says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is like, well, I, I, would, I would never persecute you, right? Who are you? You've been persecuting my people, therefore you're hurting me. Well, Satan knows that. He's always known that. What hurts God's people hurts Jesus. And when you're up against a sovereign God, the easiest way probably to hurt Jesus is to hurt his people. And he feels everything that you're going through. Everything. Number two, to discipline the children of the Lord. This is also a rather easy one. It's more of the cause and effect sort of thing. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, God, does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So this is another obvious one. It has, it has a lot to do with our expectations of getting what we deserve. As I said, you do bad things, bad things happen to you. But it's not exactly a bad thing that happens to you because it's the discipline of the Lord. And it is specifically tailored to deal with us where we are. And the Lord's hand behind it is always good and loving as the, this passage we read just it makes clear. And that leads us to the next reason why Christians suffer, and it was, it was mentioned in this passage I just read, to sanctify us, to sanctify us. Here's what, here's what James had to say about suffering. He said, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effects, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
So here the suffering is from the very same hand, but at least it, it appears it's not always or necessarily corrective, not first and foremost. Sometimes suffering is introduced into our lives that is not the response to a wrong, but is directed by God to grow us, to sanctify us, to make us more Christ-like. This would be like a coach training us with difficult exercises to build us up. Sometimes we had to run lines in basketball because we were lazy and it was a punishment. But most of the time when we ran lines, it was to get us in shape. Both times it was miserable. Right, right. It wasn't better one time versus the other. It was all just terrible all the time. But it, but, but it was meant to build us up. This doesn't make suffering more pleasant. That perspective. But there is a category of the Lord doing this, and James instructs us to maintain a right perspective in the middle of it. The right perspective should, oddly enough, result in joy and thanksgiving as we consider the awesome work that God is doing in our lives, transforming us into Christ likeness. But of course, that doesn't explain all suffering. So we move on. Number four, to glorify God, to glorify God. In John chapter nine, there's a story of the, the man. There's a man born blind. And it's a wonderful passage. And if you can't remember it, go home and read it today. But, but the, the, the disciples are, are walking along where with Jesus and it's kind of a lull in things. And so they, uh, they see a man who is blind begging on the side of the roll, road and they say, uh, why is this man blind? Who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Hashtag karma, right? That's, that's what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking. Whose fault is it that this man is blind? Verse John 9, 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So it had nothing to do with it, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, you'll read John 9 today if you go home and read it, which I'd recommend, and you can read it in less time than it will take you to drink a cup of coffee. And the extent of this man's lifelong suffering is often lost on us. We, we, we might even think as we read it real quickly, man, I wish I could have been that guy, right? Oh, he was so blessed. He was so lucky to have the Lord intervene in his life. And we forget his entire life was horrific blind, a beggar. And we see that his relationships with his parents were less than ideal as you read through John 9. So don't be, un don't be unthinking. This man suffered daily his entire life without any indication that what he was doing or was going through was the result of, a, 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 well, that would result in incredible glory to the son of God. He didn't know that. His whole life he dealt with being blind. Now, that doesn't make it untrue that what he went through was going to bring incredible glory to Jesus. And, and I'll bet you that today, in the presence of Christ, he is grateful that he was appointed for such a thing. Nevertheless, just remember that his suffering was probably as puzzling to him as it was to his disciples. Christian, it can be simultaneously true that your suffering is brutal. And you can be the object of compassion and that you were appointed for such a thing so that Christ can be glorified in you. Those things can be and are simultaneously true. And in this case, in John 9, God is glorified when he brought the man out of suffering. And God can absolutely do that with you. And we should thank the Lord when he does. God is routinely praised in scripture as the savior, the deliverer. 
delivers us from our affliction, any affliction that we can undergo. And he is praised even when, especially when, that affliction was ordained by him for that purpose. Number five, we suffer to experience the comfort of God and enable ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He, God, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, keep thinking about that, we'll return to it, number seven, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will also share in the comfort. This passage goes on to suggest that God is praised when he delivers us and our suffering can even promote prayer by the body on our behalf. You might be going through suffering in order that the body of Christ might pray more. Now, I'm sure that many of you understand what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You've been both the recipient of such comfort and you have been the comforter trained in how to help others through your own suffering. And there, there's been so many different kinds of suffering that, that you have gone through here. And, 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 and yet I see God using you to minister to other people through the comfort, through the training that you received as you went through your own trial. And it, it, it breaks my heart that we have so many experts in this congregation in so many different kinds of suffering because I know what it costs you to get to that place where you can minister to others. Nevertheless, this is what God is doing in your life for that purpose, that you might minister to others. Number six, to experience the power and love of Christ. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Recall our psalm, Israel knew that the battle belongs to the Lord, struggling, which makes people feel weak and helpless, is an opportunity for us to see the power of the Lord at work in us. It clarifies our thinking. It enables us to recognize what is always true. We are completely dependent upon the Lord. And as all of you probably know, you never feel more dependent upon God than when you are suffering. Paradoxically, as Paul would say, that suffering is a gift because it brings such clarity. And finally, number seven, and this is the most difficult of them, to fill up the sufferings of Christ. And I think that's really what Psalm 44 is kind of pointing at here. It's complicated. Some help, I think, can be found in Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh 
what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. And we think, well, what on earth could that mean? Christ's work of suffering, his atoning work was not sufficient? Well, here's what, the answer is no, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we atone for our own sin in any way. We can't do that. And if you are here, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to know that your only hope is placing your trust in the one who died on your behalf. You cannot reconcile yourself to God, but Jesus can. So, so whatever filling up the full measure of the afflict, Christ's afflictions means, it doesn't mean that you participate in your own atonement. Jesus was good enough, good enough. Maybe Revelation 6 can bring us some help here. In verses 10 and 11, we, we get this picture of these like disembodied souls around the throne of God. And here's what they say. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So apparently these are people prior to the resurrection, but they have been martyred on earth for their faith. Look at verse 11. They were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. There's a full number in God's mind. It appears that in God's economy, there's a certain amount of persecution that God intends his people to suffer for his name's sake. He is keeping score. He sees Everything and everything is a going is going according to his plan. You might think, well, why? Why all this? And I don't know. I could say something like evil is exposed as truly evil when it lashes out at God through his people. I think that's true. And the mercy, justice, love, and holiness of God are all magnified in that suffering. And when the world is judged for their rejection of God and their persecution of God's people, they will be persecuted. Uh, they will be judged. Every single drop of blood will be accounted for. Every tear shed will be accounted for. Old Testament Israel understood as they read the, the Old Testament scriptures that they played a role of vicarious suffering on behalf of the world. And, 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 and they were right in that understanding God's people will always be asked to do such things. But what Israel didn't understand is that their role could only be fulfilled by one who was perfect. Fulfilling a role that Israel as a sinful collective could never fill. But it is still true that God's people in a very real sense suffer on behalf of the world. And now in God's economy, he has given us the inestimable privilege of suffering for the glory of Christ. And Christian, you need to know that God will not be your debtor. Which is why the psalm ends this way. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. Redeem us because of your faithful love. Given everything that was confessed in this psalm, it only makes sense to call out to the Lord for deliverance. Notice that Israel doesn't blame God. They didn't question his character or attributes, but they did alert him to their lived experience in the moment. They were suffering. They didn't really even thank him for the suffering. We, we should thank God for what he's doing in the midst of our trials, but we're never called to call evil good. On the contrary, we call evil what it is, evil. We protest it. We fight against it. 
And our primary means, not, not our only, but our primary means is of fighting against evil is to pray against it. And that's what Israel did. They went to the Lord. They appealed to the, one of the many things that they knew to be true about God. God is loving and his covenant loving, loving his, his chesed, his loyal love is powerful and faithful. And so Christians, we should do likewise. Recall the kindness of God to us in our salvation and our adoption. Recall his promises. Meditate on his character and pray with fervency that he might deliver you and all of his people. And know this, just as the writer of Psalm 44 knew, your response to suffering matters. I think it matters more than we can imagine. Job's faithfulness reverberated through the heavenlies. So does yours. Every prayer uttered in your weakness is magnified through the heavens and is loud in the ears of God, our Savior. Every blow that you endure is personally felt by your loving Savior. Every tear shed is precious to the Lord, and he keeps every one of them. He is keeping score. And the God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to make you stand to the very end. We know this because in the end, Jesus Christ will be vindicated. He will be proven right. He will be proven just. And for you who are in Christ, when Jesus is vindicated, you will be too. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us faith, faith to see your hand in trials. I pray that in the midst of our suffering, that we would go to you recounting your promises, meditating on your great character, but that we would seek you, that you might deliver us. And we pray, Father, that that deliverance would come. And until it does, we pray you'd keep us faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.